boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. It's Binge Boys. I'm Hal Rudnick, and with me is Lon Harris. Hoot hoot, Lon. How's it going? Other greetings that are not hoot hoot. Shout out to Owl Nation. What does it mean to be an Owl Nation? It means whatever you want it to be. You too can be an owl. It doesn't have to mean anything. It means whatever you bring to it. Exactly. Lon, you are touching the essence of Owl Nation. By which I mean it means nothing, because you should not bring anything. True. So, Lon, how you been? Doing well. Doing doing pretty good. As as good as can be considered, I guess. You know, considering this world, this crazy world we're in. Oh yeah, we're in a crazy world, and I'm I'm sorry that uh, the people listening on the podcast cannot. I'm looking at you via Zoom, and your beard is looking full and handsome. It's lustrous these days. Yeah, it is lustrous. Yeah. What do you? What's your beard maintenance uh, regimen? Real quick. Oh, I don't I don't go in for that. I mean, I like I shampoo it with the exact same shampoo that I use on the top of my head occasionally just so it doesn't it doesn't get grud. I think that's a big misconception about dudes with beards is that they're not like they're not cleaning their beard regularly unless they're like that metrosexual kind of dude. And it's like, no, no, it, it would be gross. Like most people with a beard, you've got to clean it regularly. They're, they're, we're not walking around with food stuck in there. You would notice, and it would be awful. What about the dudes who are up at that Sturgis motorcycle rally? Are they cleaning yeah, those beards? Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not those guys. I mean, if you're a person who showers regularly, if you're already showering regularly and you have a beard, the beard is getting cleaned along with everything else. Take my word on it. Well, but showering the, regularly is relative in pandemic times, Long. That's true. Uh, I was going to say, there are all those, like, beard care, like, there's a lot of products where it's like a lotion or a cream for your beard. And a lot of them are like, they use those like male scents, you know, where it's like cool sport. Yeah. yeah tobacco and charcoal scented. And it's just like, yeah, it try to make you feel like more of a man, you know? Yes. It's like, it's uh, gunpowder and ash scented. It's like, I just. Mezcal and hammers. Yeah. It's like flowers is fine. Like jasmine, fine. I know that's fine. You oh know, I yeah, I don't need it to. I don't need my beard to smell like bourbon. It'll do that at the end of the night on its own. Oh yeah, because Lon is gonna drink some brown liquor. I'm gonna push some bourbon into it. So, any uh, streaming news pressing before we uh, jump into some things we've been watching? There is a lot of streaming news. I don't know if much of it is like super pressing. I did think today. I don't know if you saw Jonah Hill is making a documentary for Netflix about therapy. Oh. It's going to feature his own therapist just being like, well, here's some stuff I did that helped Jonah. But what I thought was interesting is, and they're teasing this, there isn't a specific announcement, but they're teasing like, you know, Netflix has that interactive feature like Bandersnatch where you could like choose what happens. Yes. Mm -hmm. So there's discussion that they're maybe going to use this feature to let you like interactively get therapy from jonah hill's guy in this documentary like there could be a series of questions like does this make you feel anxious or do you experience trauma around this and you could choose and they'll have like specific advice for you based on what you choose oh that's fascinating that that sounds great on a a couple of fronts it sounds that it's got a a practical useful element to it and then also anything we can do to kind of normalize and uh, make more acceptable and talk about, you know, mental illness, 
therapy, seeking out therapy. That's uh, nothing but a good thing. Yeah, I think, I, and I think that's part of what he's sort of doing with this is like, look, I used to think that their talk about therapy was cheesy and that it was corny and that it wouldn't really help. But I want to show people what it's really all about and sort of encourage them if they think they might need it to use it, which is good. I also feel like everybody who has a therapist that they like, this has probably occurred to them at one point. And it's like, it's nice to be Jonah Hill because you're like, oh, my therapist is so great. Somebody should do a documentary about them. He could just go to Netflix and be like, we're going to do a documentary about my therapist. And they're like, all right, Jonah, whatever, whatever you want to do, man. Like, yeah, you got carte blanche around here. Yeah, like most people would just have that idea and it would just vaporize into the air. But if you, you know, you're Jonah Hill, you made mid 90s. You can call Joaquin Phoenix like Joaquin Phoenix is producing it. So you could just get on the horn to Joaquin Phoenix and be like, hey, bro, produce this movie with me. And he'll be like, all right, man. Well, it would be weird if he got Joaquin Phoenix on board because Joaquin Phoenix is being accused along with the director of Joker by David Fincher for a poor view of the mentally ill. I don't think that's what Fincher meant. I I think that got overblown. I don't know if you saw Fincher's actual quote. I think Fincher was actually praising. I think Fincher was actually praising Joker. He was saying how unconventional and outside of the box an idea it was to take this like previously established IP and then put it into a world about how the mental ill are the mentally ill are betrayed by our society. I think it was just he was using that phrase to describe what Joker is about. People interpreted it as he's saying the movie betrays the mentally ill. I think he was saying Joker is about a man who is mentally ill, who is betrayed by a society that is supposed to protect him. Now, I do think he was saying it's a shame you couldn't make a movie like Joker without him being the Joker. I think that was the point he was making is like, there should be room for movies about this, even if he's not the Joker. But I don't think he was singling out that movie, like people said. I think that was more a like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we got a quote from Dave Fincher slamming Joker? Everybody would click on that sort of deal. This was my take. Intr- well, you know what? I'm going to have to go back and look because I can see that argument. It, it, I think, it. you know, I like the movie. I think, you know, Joaquin Phoenix's portrayal was uh, amazing. And uh, I, I enjoyed the homage to, you know, 70s Scorsese. But I wonder if Todd Phillips and Joaquin Phoenix played a little fast and loose with mental illness in that movie and just painted it as like, that's too much of a dangerous powder keg. Here's what he actually said. Quote, I don't think anyone would have looked at that material and thought, yeah, let's take Travis Bickle and Rupert Pumpkin and conflate them, then trap him in a betrayal of the mentally ill and trot it out for a billion dollars. Nobody would have thought they had a shot at a giant hit with Joker had the Dark Knight not been as massive as it was. So I think he's not, he's saying the character is trapped in a betrayal of the mentally ill. Not that the movie is a betrayal of the mentally ill. That's out of context with the other stuff that he's saying. Gotcha. Yeah. No, that makes sense. The character was portrayed by, yeah, the forces that be in Gotham and uh, the, yeah. Exactly. Like Gotham was a trap and a betrayal of the mentally ill, not the movie. I also just don't think David Fincher would come out. I think even if he hated Joker, I don't think he would say it's a betrayal of the mentally ill. I think he'd just be like, that eh, didn't really work for me. You know, like it just felt a little like grandiose as a statement. I mean, I want to live in, uh, but I do want to live in a world where directors are beefing. 
I mean that yeah, that would be good. They usually that like yeah, usually they're all like very respectful of one another at least publicly. But that would be great. I I would enjoy it. And another thing about this Zemeckis asshole, like who doesn't <laughs> want to hear that? Welcome to Marwin. Welcome to this fist, Ron. Let's talk a little Mandalorian, shall let's, we? Let's. Yeah, they're they're selling a Funko Pop now of my favorite moment, where it's like a little baby Yoda. Or I should say the child. I don't want to confuse you, Hal. It's the child. Yes, because I, well established, I thought Baby Yoda was actual Yoda because I'm a flipping dope. It's like 900. It makes no sense at all. No, I just, I didn't realize the timeline. I just didn't realize. And, you know, I just got all caught up. A thousand year timeline. Crazy. Anyway, the child in, in this in this Funko, you know, they have those deluxe Funkos where it's not just the the character, but like a whole scene. How many Funkos do you own, Lon? I, I really don't own very many Funkos. I, I think Funkos that I have personally purchased, I believe there are only two, and then I've been gifted or left. Like the old Screen Junkies office had a ton, and I pilfered some from there when we moved. But no, I don't have very many. I'm not, I'm not, and it's not a anti-Funko stance. Like, if you're a Funko fan, you don't need to, like, write me and defend yourself. I'm just not much of a collector guy other than, like, DVDs and Blu-rays. Like, I always collected physical media movies I liked, but I, I don't, I'm not toys or art or odds and ends. I'm just not much of a collector guy. You like, yeah, you collect physical media and turn-of-the-century gynecological tools from the 1900s. Wow. Went outside the box, but sure. Yeah, I, I, uh, practical stuff, stuff you can use, practical stuff. That's what I collect. Not, not, not like pops or whatever. But anyway, there is one and it's like the child gazing longingly at the collection of, uh, frog eggs. And it, it is clearly like Lucasfilm did not foresee the divisiveness of this bit at all. They thought this was going to be hilarious. They thought everybody was going to love it. They thought this was like classic, iconic Star Wars moment. Let's start cranking out the merch. And I thought that was pretty amusing. That episode struck a real chord in you because you're like, the child is now a demon baby, a demon 50-year-old child trying to basically end this race of frog people. It's not. That's a complete, that's a complete mischaracterization of what I said. Then tell me what you felt because that's what I was getting. That's, I, that's what I was picking up. That's that's we did this on a previous episode, but I it was it was more like, you know, it, it felt out of character and, and it felt like a we know so little about this child that one of the first pieces of information I don't know that you want to give us is that he's a voracious carnival. And and my standing was not so unexpected because children can be precocious little dipshits. Hell, no, seriously, why are we doing this again? We already did this. Every episode, this is going to be a new segment. We're just going to fight about the frog ladies. Like, I honestly, like, do you want to have this fight again? You know what? Not before bedtime. Lon, also <laughs> on the, the episode, we had uh, Katie Sackoff. Who, okay, here's the thing. The Mandalorian, it's typecast central. You got Timothy Olyphant as a sheriff. You got Giancarlo Esposito as a heavy. And now you have Katie Sackoff as another space warrior. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely doing... Hashtag Battlestar Galactica. They're definitely doing a thing where it's like a little shorthand. Like, they only have one episode with a lot of these characters. They want to bring in, and they don't want to have to take a ton of time to set up who this person is. They want to be like, you know who this person is because it's Timothy Olyphant. And I think it is so far, it works for them. Like, it, they're using that shorthand well. They, they are they, using it well. Listen, I'm, I don't dislike seeing these people, 
I also felt the same way about Titus Welliver showing up this week. TV's Bosch, also the man in black mm-hmm. who lost, is an imperial officer. And I was thinking he does not make it. He, he won't be back for future episodes, Titus Welliver's character, which is a shame because I could totally see him having further adventures in outer space. And they wouldn't even need to change his character name because Bosch already sounds very Star Wars. Lando, Han, Bosch. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's I tweeted this, too, and a lot of people wrote me to be like, well, what about Bosk? He's a bounty hunter. It's like, I remember Bosk. He's the lizard looking bounty hunter guy from the original Mm. trilogy. I certainly am aware of who Bosk is, everybody. I'm just saying in addition to that, like Bosch Bilzerian sounds like he could totally be a Star Wars character. Is Bosch's last name Bilzerian? No, I my my friend my friend my friend Mike and I made like that. Dan Bilzerian. Dan, Dan Bilzerian, the Instagram guy. So we thought the best Star Wars name for Titus Welliver, Bosch Bilzerian, which sounds exactly like a Star Wars name. Like I don't think George Lucas could do better than that. I agreed, Lon. You you were saying that this episode might have been doing a little bit of world building towards a spinoff, or I I mean I read a lot about this. This is not my theorizing because I don't know this much about Star Wars. I'll be honest with you. Well, you, you know that you know that the child is not Yoda. I did know that the child is not Baby Yoda. I don't go that deep, but apparently. Uh, Bo-Katan, the character that Katie Sackhoff is playing in this episode of The Mandalorian that you mentioned, that ties into a whole lot of lore that was established on Clone Wars and Rebels. We heard a lot from her that seemed to indicate there was a whole larger story being set in motion about Planet Mandalore and efforts to rebuild Planet Mandalore. She wants to get the Darksaber back, which we saw Moff Gideon has it. That's Giancarlo Esposito at the end of season one. And then, of course, at the end of the episode, she sends the Mandalorian to go find Ahsoka Tano, who we know is going to be played by Rosario Dawson, and is also a huge pivotal character from all of these Dave Filoni animated shows. So that all seems like it's really leading somewhere, and that that will be a story that it could be larger than what we're doing in The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian is this relatively contained story about... Din Jaren and the child, and he's got to find some Jedi to leave the child with. That doesn't seem like it's also going to be about rebuilding the entire planet of Mandalore unless the show is going to get real different. So what a lot of people online are thinking, and I'm inclined to agree, is that that's setting up something else. It'll either be a different show or a movie or some other thing that we're going to follow about Ahsoka Tano and Bo-Katan and the efforts to rebuild planet Mandalore. Yeah, perhaps. But who knows? Maybe he drops the kid off and he starts doing something else. Yeah, or maybe it's just about frog couples seeking revenge for the devastating loss of their eggs. Or maybe it's about frog couples in love. Also, Darksaber uh, reminds me a little too much of uh, Dark Helmet (laughs) from uh, Spaceballs. Your Schwartz is bigger than mine. Yeah, he would have fought with the dark with the dark saber. One thing, this is this is petty and nitpicky, but far be it from me to, you know, jump past something petty and nitpicky. I didn't like the flare on Sasha Banks's uh, Mandalorian helmet. It was just a little. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm too much of a like a Boba Fett purist or something. But it, it just seemed a, like a little too like it was like calligraphy or it looked like a butterfly or something. And to me, it reminded me of like if you get a lady's baseball cap, like if you're a Red Sox fan and instead of getting the like the blue Red Sox hat with the red lettering, you get 
like, oh, a pink ladies hat with the. It's like, you know, keep the armor standard. I think you're overstating the case, and and also I think it felt like I saw other people online making the case about the boobs and the armor. I think I, I there are definitely times in media where they and comics and stuff where they'll draw the women with huge boobs in their armor and it looks silly and it's obviously impractical. I get that argument, but this I didn't really even notice that they had those like divots in it. It, it, it didn't stand out to me, and on some level. It does feel like practical, like, well, ladies would need a little bit of room in the front of their armor for, you know, for actual boobies to go. So I don't know. To me, that it didn't look like outrageous. I didn't think it looked like they took this armor. Also, that would have been based on what it looked like in the Clone Wars. So I don't know how much even choice they had in in the the live action because they had to make it match because people were used to seeing these characters. I, I don't know. I think you have to forgive some level of artistic license. Like, it would be boring and you wouldn't be able to tell them apart if everybody was in identical armor. Sure, yeah. I don't think they went full Lola Bunny or anything like that with the armor. Also, I don't think all of their armor is made out of Beskar. So, like, that would be a different... Like, the Mandalorian, our hero, he's head-to-toe in, in the official material they're supposed to be using, but not everybody has access to that much Beskar so theirs is made out of a different material. That's why he was able to run and like absorb all of those laser blasts, whereas that would have killed anybody else. Right. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, because I wonder about that because he is so particular. Like every time he sees someone wearing that armor, he's like, where did you, where did you get that armor? Well, right. There's armor that's in the Mandalorian style. And especially like that very familiar, like visory helmet look. But then it's the material it's made out of. That was the whole thing in season one. Like he took this gig because Werner Herzog offered him this crazy amount of metal he could use to make a new suit of armor. And not everybody's going to have that amount of Beskar. It's very rare and expensive. So most of these Mandalorians are out there with armor made of other material, maybe a little bit of it. Aluminum. Uh, yeah, aluminum or whatever, if we were in the UK. If, we, if it was the Mandalorian with a U in the middle. Are, are any other armors made of adamantium? It's a Gore-Tex. Most of them are made out of Gore-Tex. <laughs> oh, uh, good for camping. So the Mandalorian continues. He and the child are off on another adventure. Well, they're look now they've got to go find Ahsoka Tana. Oh, true, true. Yeah, when, when's Rosario going to pop up? Uh, I think we're probably going to get an episode, like an Adventure of the Week episode, and then like episode five, we'll probably get the next part of the story. That seems how they're doing. Makes sense. I feel like there's at least a, a one-off coming. Sure, sure. You and I both took a look at a teacher on Hulu. The show, not just a teacher. That would be weird. Yes. If we just went and took a look at a teacher. Yeah, we didn't like drive past a college and be like, oh, there's a teacher. No. We, we, what a dumb, can we just say before we get into our thoughts on the show, bad title. Dumb to, doesn't, one, doesn't tell me anything. What's the show about? A teacher. What else you got? Lots of shows about a teacher. Give me say, what is it, AP Bio? How do I know the difference? Give me another element. You could not be more generic with your name and vague. From an SEO perspective, what a disaster. You try to look up a trailer. You want to look up who stars. What are you typing in, a teacher? That's no help at all. Yeah, I mean, like maybe give us a hint of what we're getting into. Like a naughty teacher, <laughs> a bad teacher. Ooh, a ribald teacher. Honestly, Naughty Teacher, perfect title. I don't know why they didn't just go with that. What about A Teacher on the Edge? Love it. 
I mean, that, that this is one thing I think you have to give these like Korean and Japanese dramas is that they always have names that really give you a pretty clear set. It's like Nurse Sees Visions High School Drama One. You know, like it's like, well, it's a drama and the nurse sees visions. I think I got it. There you go. You know what you're strapping in for. Yeah, it's like Taiwan's plane crash romance. Like, well, I feel like I know two elements of this story right from the start. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you are you are you are set up going in. It's a lot. I'm always tempted. I've only watched I've only watched one or two of them, but I'm always tempted. There's a lot of these like Taiwanese dramas and Korean dramas that go up on Netflix. And a lot of them have interesting premises. And I'm like, I would check that out. Like there was one about it was like a high school nurse and she sees hallucinations of like little blob guys. But they let her know that like dramatic things are going to happen. But she's the only one who can see them. So she everybody at the school thinks she's crazy, but she's like constantly saving their asses. Because these little blob guys tipped her off. And like I haven't gotten a chance to watch it, but like what a that's a premise. Quick recommendation if you're if you are interested, there was I watched a couple episodes of It's Okay Not to Be Okay. Oh, I don't know that. Oh yeah, it's it's a Korean uh drama that involves fantasy. It's a little bit like I would describe it as like kind of like a Korean early Tim Burton because it involves just all sorts of like fantastical elements, but then it's also grounded. It's about this children's book writer who is in touch with like dark forces. And yeah, it was, it was rather enjoyable. A friend of mine turned me on to it. Yeah. Worth checking out for sure. It's got very much a Tim Burton vibe, but back to a teacher on Uh, Hulu. Lon, this was some high melodrama. I felt like this, it was basically like a a very well-produced, well-acted soap opera. I feel like they do a pretty good job. Like Kate Mara and Nick Robinson star, she's playing this, Mm -hmm. this, you know, she's an adult, she's an English teacher, a high school English teacher, and he's like a precocious kind of mature for his age senior in her class. And at first, they just have kind of, they get along, and she's helping him with the SAT. But then it pretty quickly moves into, there's obviously an attraction there, and she sort of tries to deny it briefly, but then gives in. And so, yeah, by episode two or three, they're already, you know, smooching, and it's already inappropriate. And I feel like they're doing a good job. The actors are doing a good job. I believe these two characters liked each other. I believe there was, like, a relationship here. I just I'm I'm struggling to figure out what the point is. Like I'm I'm struggling to figure out why we're being shown these characters in this world and this scenario. On one level, we're being presented with a lot of of reasons. Like especially on the Kate Mara side, we get that like a lot of her husband in- bought a whole band's worth of equipment. Right, like her husband ignores her, and they don't have the best communication, and they're having these fertility sort of struggles as well Mm -hmm. and we have that scene where she steals lipstick so she's like kind of impulsive and maybe bored oh yeah that was straight out of uh ang lee's the ice storm if you remember that with joan allen shoplifting yeah looking for a little excitement in her life or a little adventure and she talks about oh she's so fond of her ut experience and you know she loved because she's starting to feel like oh it's been so long since college she'd love to get that back and she had that, that, that line about Rufal that she's never really lived anywhere other than Austin and what always wanted to see the world. So we get so much of that. It's almost too much. It's almost like, well, why? I don't need this many explanations as long as she knows why she's doing it. Like, that's enough to pull me along in terms of the drama. It, 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 it weirdly felt like 
you don't have to do this much explaining. It's not interesting if you do this much explaining. Yeah, they do so much explaining, and there's uh, th- there's like there's no question what's going to happen going in, and it's a bullet train to it happening to this teacher and this student getting together. There's no who will they or won't they? There's no mystery. There's no potential for, oh, you thought this was going to happen, but then something else happens. No, this is standard Mary Kay Letourneau, if you remember that story or whatever. There's like too many of those stories. And that is, well, but that's but, something interesting to talk about too. I, I want to dig into this a little with you. So sure. the first thing that struck me about this particular scenario and how different it is from the real versions of this story that you hear about is that Kate Mara is 37, Nick Robinson is 25. So the guy playing the high schooler is not even college age. Like, he's an adult man. Yeah, like in the tradition of, like, Beverly Hills 90210 or whatever. An older but when guy, you yeah. see the two of them together, like, there's a sequence, I think it's in the third episode, where they go to the University of Texas Austin campus. Yeah, and they're hanging out on campus. They look perfectly natural visually as a couple i'm not defending it like obviously it's wrong and in the show she's supposed to be in her 30s and he's supposed to be 17 so it's illegal and wrong 17 or 18 i thought he was supposed to be 18 yeah somewhere in that zone but anyway, I mean, there's just the question of legality uh, morally it's yeah i'm not defending it and the show is not defending it but what i but i was struck by how visually they've made it palatable like they made a show where seeing these two people together and seeing them make out is not uncomfortable for us because we they both look like adults and we know that they're adults. And I feel like that lets the show off the hook in some pretty serious ways because Mary, you mentioned Mary Kay Letourneau. That boy was like 13. Like that's Yeah, he was like 13 when and got her pregnant. Yeah, no, that's horrific. And I'm not saying they should have made a show where Kate Mara makes out with a 13-year-old. Like, not. Nah, I get why they wouldn't do that. But, but it does change it on a fundamental level when you see Kate Mara and Nick Robinson together. Yeah, and I would think that's obviously, that's got to be by design. Well, it is, of course. They could have cast somebody so younger. So they want to have that effect on the viewer. Like, okay, this is wrong, but visually, look how look at how they fit together like puzzle pieces. And I assumed that the reasoning behind that was, well, they don't want to focus on the age difference being why it's wrong. They want to focus on the power differential is why it's wrong. Like it's wrong because she's an authority figure over him and he's a student and she's taking advantage and like grooming him. But I don't feel like they're doing a good job of actually making that the focus. Like, I, there's not a lot of material about that. One of the more interesting things just I no- noticed, there, there's a, a grooming warning at the top of each episode that we will we are seeing an adult grooming, for all intents and purposes, a child. I, I find that kind of fascinating. I think that's because, like, the grooming stuff would have a lot more emotional impact. And I think we just realize it's happening more if this was being told from the Nick Robinson character's perspective. But it's entirely from the Kate Mara perspective, which is an it's odd. It's an odd choice. True. I have found a lot of cringe where you're like, no, don't do it. What are you doing? Like, it, it has that effect where you're like, please, you you know better. You should both know better. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that, too, is like, well, we know it's a TV show. Like, it, you could see how two people doing this in reality would think that they were probably going to get away with it. And I'm sure people do get away with things like this in real life. 
But we know that it's a TV show and there's no way that they're not going to get busted. So it does have a fatalistic feeling if you're watching it. Like, well, there's only going to be three or four more episodes max before somebody sees them and they're blown up. Like, it's in the trailer. You know that's coming. Yeah. And so, so that's the thing. It's like, you know what's happening and every step of the way, but it's like happening in slow motion. So you're like, what are you doing? No, don't t- don't go there with him. No, don't lie to your husband. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a soap opera with great production value. You would think when you're a teacher and you're visiting a college with a student and you get invited to an eggs and kegs event, that's a moment to be like, I don't think we should go to that. And that is not the decision a teacher makes. Yeah, a teacher makes bad decisions. Part of being a, a teacher. teacher. You know, it's it's a fun popcorn show and it's easy breezy. It's very short. I was expecting one hour episodes. Right. You think it's going to be an hour long drama and then it's 25 minutes. Yeah, a lot of the episodes don't even make it to 30. Like the third episode is t- literally 20 minutes. It's like so this is so this it's like a it's like a short. Worth noting that a teacher is uh, from the same uh, director of the film a teacher uh, from 2013, which is also fascinating to me. It's like if she keeps returning to this story, it must really mean something to her. And for the life of me, I can't figure out what that is. Oh, yeah. Coming next, A Teacher, the Broadway musical. Yeah, like, if you keep coming back to this story, you would think there would be some kind of big connection for her. Like, this is so relevant, and I really have something to say about who this person is or why she would make this choice or what this means or what this means about other relationships that aren't, like, exactly like this one. And I just, I don't know what the relevance is. It just feels like it's this story about this woman who is bored in her life and makes a... Very bad series of calls. Yeah, maybe she just wants to make uh, content about teachers boning students. <laughs> Lon, speaking of which, we have someone who wanted to just get something off their chest. So we said that A Teacher was the show was based on the film, but there's a guest here who says that it's based on his experience in real life. Uh, I'm going to welcome in Mickey Foster Gubbins. Mickey Foster Gubbins. Yeah, hello. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that this show was uh, was based on my experience. Was when I was in high school, I had a three way sexual experience with the lunch lady who worked in the cafeteria or the caf, as we called it, and a janitor. Well, it was a real scandal. It was it was a formative experience of my life. They stole my story and they put it on air. Just changed some of the details. This doesn't really feel like anything having to do with your story, though. This is about. Uh... I was the meat in a lunch lady and janitor sandwich. Was the janitor also a lady? So these are two ladies or this was a male lady combo? No, it was a, it was a grizzled gentleman and a, and a lady who worked slinging hash in the cafeteria. Were they a couple previously? Was this like a three-way, like, was this a pre-existing relationship you were brought into? Or do you think this was a one-off for all involved? I believe they might have been on again, off again. I don't know if I was the only one. I was 18 at the time. It was senior ditch day. I feel like this, to be honest with you, could really be its own. I don't think you have to feel like you can't tell your story because this story is out there. This really feels like a compelling enough story to be its own tale. Uh, Call FX on Hulu. Do you have a Hollywood connection, Lon? Harris? Now, clearly, no. I'm here talking to you on a podcast. But I, I think that it would be worth making some calls if I was here. I'll, well, I'll do, what do I do? Get on the phone and say, hello, William Morris? 
I think you get on the phone first with the lunch lady and the janitor and make sure it's they're okay with you telling their story, sir. They're fine with it because they're dead. This occurred in 1968. I am an older gentleman. Very old gentleman. All right. Well, in that case, then, yes, I think CAA, William Morris. I think if you could get in touch with Judd Apatow, this sounds like it may be up his alley. Do they take unsolicited material from old weirdos? This is Hollywood. Everyone loves old unsolicited material from old everyone weirdos. loves unsolicited material from old weirdos this town runs on unsolicited material from if you're listening to this right now just know hollywood runs on unsolicited material from old weirdos there would be no no there would be no braveheart without uh, every and you think of a film Wait, Mel Gibson's an old... Uh, Mel Gibson is an old yeah, weirdo. He just got a letter from an old weirdo that was like, Hello, sir, let me tell you about my father, William Wallace. And he was like, well, this is fascinating material. I'm going to follow up on this. William Wallace, the, the, the timeline doesn't match up on that, but anyway. No, it doesn't. That's, he changed all the details. The day was June... 22nd, 1968. All those Scottish wars happened in the 50s. It's just Mel Gibson changed it for the film. Oh. I was like, that's too far. That's too big a change. And he was like, listen, I don't listen. To, I don't take filmmaking advice from Jews. And I was like, well, sorry, Mr. Gibson. Oh, that sounds like Mel. Yeah, I was like, this is, it's only 1995. People don't know this about you yet. I will keep it quiet on your behalf, but that's very offensive. Maybe Mel Gibson would want to make my story about being the meat in a janitor lunch lady sandwich. Let me tell you, there was a lot of condiment play. As long as no one involved was of the Jewish persuasion, I think you're, I think you're fine. No, we're, we were all goys. We were yeah, all Gummins goys. doesn't sound like a, like, a, like a particularly Jewish thing. I think no, it was beefaroni day in the cafeteria, by the way. And I was going, it was Senior Ditch Day, too. I wait, no, you said it was Senior Ditch Day. It was Senior Ditch Day, but beefaroni was served in the cafeteria, so all the seniors were gone. The, te- the seniors chose to ditch on beefaroni day? That doesn't sound right. I know that sounds crazy as a shithouse rat, but I went into that cafeteria scene if I could get a plate of beefaroni, and I got a lot more than I bargained for. I gave her my tater tots. And you know what I'm talking about when I say my tater tots. I think we're going to wrap it up here. Thank, 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 thanks so much for coming Thank in. you for having me. Oh, but I'd never told you about the gravy on the rump roast. I think we're, we've heard quite enough. I don't think this has anything to do with a teacher. I think if anything, this would be called a janitor and a lunch lady if you were going to make this into a Hulu limited series. And an average looking senior. I was very average in looks. All right, Lon Harris. I want to thank you. That's a handsome beard. What do you have any? What do you do to keep your beard so lustrous? I I just uh, just shampoo, sir. Just like there are oils and lotions. We went through the, the, you know, you smell like charcoal or bourbon. Oh, good. I was not here at that time. I uh, I prefer just uh, shampoo. You know. Then we talked about the Mandalorian. You know, we could go through that. Well, I'll have to listen to this episode. You know, it's with Funko Pops and others. Oh, going to be a. They're, they're doing a. They're doing a. By new the way, series. first time, long time, Lon. Thank you for letting me talk about my interlude. Yeah, that was uh, Mickey Foster Gubbins claiming he is the inspiration for a teacher. Had not been listening to the podcast until his appearance, which is kind of rude. I mean, you would think you would want to hear the show leading up to when you're coming on. 
so you would have that context. Yeah, a little bit rude. A little, a little bit rude. rude. I don't know if we'll have him back. We'll see. I mean, we could give him a lifetime ban. <laughs> I don't know if we need to go that far. He may have more sexual experiences we, we, we want to dig into. Who knows? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. I don't know where this podcast is going. Who knows? Oh, I know where it's going. Lon, uh, moving on from A Teacher, you and I both watched a docu-series on Netflix called Trial 4. I haven't seen Trials 1 through 3, but I was still able to follow. Yes. <laughs> you do not need to see the other trials. You can skip Trials 1 through 3. Yeah, they sum it up. They sum they, it up they, here. There's a great you. recap. There's a great several episode recap. Absolutely. Previously in all the trials. <laughs> yeah, previously. But it covers a murder that occurred of a Boston police officer in, it was in the early 90s, and the wrongful imprisonment and conviction of Sean Ellis. And it's, it, this, even though it's about a case from back then, it resonates and is so pertinent to so much that that's going on today. It is still, I mean, I thought one thing that's so compelling about it is that it is about this sort of old case and you are kind of following it in that true crime style of let's go way back and here's what happened and here's what the cops thought and we know this happened now, but it is still going on. I mean, there's also a current story where Sean Ellis is still defending himself from these charges. It's called trial four because he's currently in his fourth trial as the show is being made, we're seeing his fourth trial. There were two mistrials. There was new evidence. So now he's got a, on a, on a, he was released. And now there's a fourth trial to sort of hopefully once and for all, you know, determine his innocence here. But it is a fascinating. So, so there is it, 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 it both is a serial type. Let's go back and re-examine this old case, but with a, you know, very relevant modern day, sort of tie. Absolutely. N new evidence is introduced. New things are come to light about some of the police that were the main investigators in the case. And we learn that, you know, the code of silence or the blue wall or whatever you want to call it, it runs deep. And this guy, the, the police officer that got killed, not a great guy, surprisingly. And just he was a dirty cop. He intimidated witnesses. He paid young women to prostitute. Yeah, they try to do this thing. That they, they sort of slowly introduce the idea that this guy was a dirty cop. Like at, at first, mm -hmm. they just include other cops who knew him being like, Jimmy was a great guy. And then they layer in this like, he had a remarkable arrest rate. Like he was arresting 10 times more. And that's when the cops are still saying great things. But your savvy audience member is already going to be like, wait a minute. This doesn't seem entirely on the up and up. Doesn't quite seem on the level. And then, yeah, it, it's really it takes them several episodes to get around to like, look, folks. And I, I it was an interesting technique. I mean, it works dramatically, although I think you could figure it out pretty early on. But it is it also plays like I feel like you could tell that aspects of this were made before the Black Lives Matter protests because it is still dealing with the idea of dirty cops with kid gloves it is still like look you're an american you probably really like cops but let us tell you some of them don't always follow all the rules and i think in a if this was made even six months or nine months later 
he's like, you don't need to, you don't need to ease us into it so much. We get it. Like they, this guy was a bad cop. Like they, they oh yeah, and the some of the discrepancies between what we're seeing and then you have interviews with cops who were on the force back then. These guys have like blinders on. It's so crazy because like we hear about the corruption and then some of these old Boston guys are like, yeah, I didn't see a problem with it. And they're such characters. There was this idea that, that a lot of these, especially cops who retired, you know, last decade or the decade before, they were cops in an era where people did not question cops. You just didn't. It was not. When I was a kid, talking back to a police officer, denigrating a police officer, it was not, it was not done. Like, I had pretty, like, I had pretty progressive, like, woke parents or whatever, but never, never anything about cops or, like, not respecting the police or, you didn't question. If a cop told you, like, look, that's what happened, you were like, well... He's there to protect and serve me. So I trust that cop, you know? Yeah, when you see just like the pomp and circumstance at the funeral for this guy who turns out to be just like a real scumbag, basically. Like these cops, they're like, like you, <laughs> I mean, not quite this, but it's they're basically saying stuff. Yeah, he smacked around women and, you know, he stole drugs, but uh, he was good police. That's what, honestly, there's a lot of that. And it, it's like these guys, they don't know, like, they're just so used to a culture that just embraced them and was just like, these guys are on our side and there are protectors and the thin blue line and all that. Yeah, they don't even realize they shouldn't be saying stuff like this. But yes, they're all like, yeah, Jimmy had an amazing arrest record because if he didn't find what he was looking for, he just planted on you. That's what uh, that's what cop work is all about. It's like, that's what? No, that's not what it's all about. Yeah. <laughs> No, you're horribly corrupt, sir. And it's not just the Sean Ellis case, the murder of the focal point here. They go into other cases from the same time period where just the word of one person, it's like, oh, yeah. Like, there's this one case they talk about where the guy was like, oh, yeah, um, a black guy in an Adidas tracksuit did it. And they send out, like, SWAT teams and riot squads everywhere to turn over, like, like every apartment, go into every like black neighborhood to rustle up all the usual suspects, as they call it. And it was completely biased and systematically, systemically racist policing. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's like, it's a little bit infuriating when you watch it, especially in, in these times. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the actual case you're talking about, because they talk about it a lot in the movie. But there's also, there's an interesting interview with a woman, a reporter for the Boston Globe, and she's talking about, you know, how long it took a lot of these police departments, Boston specifically, but you could probably expand it out from there, to update their techniques. I mean, she's saying, you know, we would had forensics and DNA and these things were available now and had been for years. But Boston cops were still making cases based on witnesses and just going around and talking to neighbors and using these very old fashioned techniques. And, you know, in our minds, in the popular consciousness, when new crime fighting tools become available, we assume every cop is just going to embrace it right away. Like, why would there's a new thing that you could use? But it's like any job where, sure, you might go into work and your boss is like, hey, I got some new software on your computer to check out. But you may have your old comfortable way of doing things, and that's how you like them. And that's how you're going to keep doing them until someone forces you to change. You're confronting a lot of different problems all at once. I mean, obviously, systemic racism is a huge issue in this film. 
And that's part of it. And corruption is a huge issue in this film. But I think it's somewhat also that it's just disorganization on some level. And it's just people get used to doing things one way and then we can do things better. But there's no organized way to make sure everybody follows the new protocol. Yeah, let's use DNA evidence and let's be a little less racist, perhaps. Right. Yeah, and I mean, all of these things like sort of work together. But it, it turns like that one, the other case in the movie, it, it turns out, oh, the guy who said that a black man in an Adidas tracksuit did it. Oh, the guy actually did it. The guy who said that he actually like they had the murderer right there. And one thing that also really struck me about this film was just the grace and like the attitude of Sean Ellis, the guy who spent 21 years in prison, wrongly convicted. He was just I can't believe that he was so like thoughtful and like calm. And it was just a, I I can't think of another word besides grace. Like he was so like, he wasn't upset at the world. He wasn't pissed off at the system. I mean, yes, he was, but he showed such calm and like, I, I have real admiration for this guy. And because, you know, I'm the kind of asshole who's like, I flip out if I'm in a road, like if someone, like if I get cut off in traffic, this guy, not like one discouraging word about his situation, about like, like, woe is me. He's like, you know, he, the reality of it resonated, but he handled it with such grace and dignity, like real admiration for that guy. Yeah. And so, I mean, almost like worth watching just for like him, like, you know, like if you're ever faced with a horrific situation, it's like, oh, handle it like Sean Ellis handled being wrongly imprisoned for 21 years. Come out. Of, and he's just he's got nothing but love for his family, appreciation for, you know, the people helping him. And yeah, a beautiful guy, just a beautiful guy. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And it's it's well told. I had a very compelling series. I got through a bunch of it, like, the first day I checked it out. Very recommended. And a good combination of, like, the true crime storytelling with this very personal story about this very compelling guy at the center of it. You get to sort of see things from his perspective. We did watch one more one more nonfiction project this week. Yes. The Werner Herzog documentary Fireball on Apple. This is our first, I think this is our first Apple TV Plus review. Oh, welcome to the party, Apple TV Plus. I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe this is the first plus project we've taken on. Yeah, a little Werner Herzog joint. Yeah, I, I love his documentaries. This one, this is the second one he's made with this scientist Clive Oppenheimer, a, a geologist. They made one called Into the Inferno together about volcanoes. And now they've done this one, Fireball Visitors from Darker Worlds about meteors and meteorites. I like these films. I don't know if I like them as much as Herzog's other documentaries, which I feel like are more metaphysical and philosophical and thoughtful. The ones he's making with Oppenheimer are very practical. Like they're, It's almost like an episode of Nova on some level or like a PBS doc. You're learning about science, and it's interesting on that level, but I feel like it's sort of balanced between Herzog's flights of fancy and what he's thinking and then okay, let's spend 20 minutes really learning about media. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I went into this a little bit kicking and screaming, but once I was immersed in it, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it, 
Have you seen other Herzog docs? Yeah, a grizzly man. Right. That's what I mean. Like, grizzly man, he did one called Encounters at the End of the World, which would be a great companion piece, which is, in that one, it's also science-y, but it's basically, he just goes to Antarctica, and he hangs out with a bunch of different scientists doing all sorts of different kinds of research there. But it's less about the science, and it's more like, Herzog standing on a glacier in awe and just talking about being on a glacier. And I, I, my, I prefer that stuff to the, like, let me talk to you about what your electron microscope is seeing here. I mean, they're all great though. I like there's, but there is the thing of Herzog's voice, you know, to put it in the kids parlance, Werner Herzog's a mood. He is like, he puts you in this space where you're like, all right. Cause every once in a while, he'll throw in the rye comment or he'll paint the picture or he'll tell you that like he'll comment on a stark, beautiful image. And you're it. He really makes it resonate much more than I feel like, you know, if it was just your uh, standard discovery channel fair. And there were so many images like the image of the tundra and like they're out there and hearing Werner Herzog talk as they do this sweep of the tundra to see if there are any meteorites that have landed there. And then the another image that struck me just looking what they went down to Mexico to find some meteorites or space particles that had flown and maybe explore a crater. Yeah, I think in Mexico they're looking at that the huge crater where the meteor that killed the dinosaurs fell in the Yucatan. Yep. And then spending the uh, Dia de los Muertos with those Mexican people and seeing all of those children and adults with their faces painted for Day of the Dead, that was just beautiful. That was just striking to me. That's the advantage of bringing a guy like Herzog along on this. You know, you get the science and you get the information, but he's there just to hold the camera and figure out what to shoot and then to pontificate and to let his mind wander and to just muse about these things that he's learning and what he's seeing. And I do feel, I feel fortunate that he's so intrigued by these huge subjects. I mean, all of his films, even his scripted work, they were, a lot of them were like the eternal struggle between man and nature, like these sort of mythic, huge themes. I think we're very lucky that it's not like, I wouldn't want to see Herzog make a movie about like gummy bears, like how they may like, this is the process by which they make the delicious candy bears. He makes everything interesting. Like Werner, Her- he could do like a, he could do a, he could do a goddamn documentary about farts on and, and make it special. It'd be like, what did he eat to make it smell that way? Was it the sausage or was it the hash browns? Did he drink too much coffee? It appears all of us are walking around during the day in a fog of confusion. And it is matched only by the fog emanating from the butthors. Let's examine a box of Lunchables. What is in Lunchables? Ham medallions? Is there a little candy bar for dessert? Maybe a Snickers? Maybe a Reese's peanut butter cup? I feel like your Herzog just sounds like a Nazi from an Indiana Jones movie. It's like, oh, we have ways of making you make the documentary, Dr. Jones. Whereas my Herzog is basically just a German triumph, the insult comic dog. Like, <laughs> ah, yes. Make the documentary for me to poop on. 
Here we are in the Antarctica. I'm standing here with the scientist. Uh, what is, what's going Step on, man? Step away from the Ark of the Covenant. Guten <laughs> Tag, Herr Jones. There was one uh, moment in there where the scientist, she said something to the effect of, we're all made up of this of these elements. And he's like, not me, I'm Bavarian. <laughs> <laughs> and he made a big point. He's like, this is the this was the only time I interrupted the documentary process. Yeah, he, he, and that's the interesting thing to me is not even the joke, which is weird and not even really a joke. But the fact that he he interrupts twice, once with the joke and then once to explain to us that this was the only time he ever interrupted while they were filming. And it's like, OK, but really a lot of a lot of emphasis on it's like a grandpa joke, really. It it was, and I didn't, I, I couldn't hear it. I had to rewind it like three times. And I normally I'd just be like, eh, screw it. I'm on to the next part. But because he said, this is the only time I interrupted the movie. You're like, like, oh, this must be important. I got to hear what he says. I finally yeah. put on the closed caption to, to read the joke. And I'm like, oh. Okay, right. a little underwhelmed in that moment. But yeah, th- this was th- this was an immersive experience. It was very enjoyable. And also I learned something. And also I did not get everything. There were like, th- as this, I zoned out a little bit as this one science scientist was explaining these crystallized meteorites that come from outer space and they are made up of the little- Oh yes, the, the, the soup, the whatever, the, the, the five, the five- pointed crystal thing yes like i i zoned out a little bit because i was it, it was a lot it was math and even herzog at one point like lets him keep talking but comes in on voiceover is like this is a lot of math i don't know if you're following all of this math but trust me crystals are important i'm really going triumph i i was trying to i started with herzog but now i was like yes the crystals are important we are here at the at the premiere Turn over the crystals, Mr. Jones. <laughs> One, that about does it. Yeah, I could do the Herzog triumph voice for hours, but we should not. We could. You know, you and I could do a road trip. We, we could do, oh, what's that? The trip. We could do our dueling Michael Caines, but instead it's dueling Herzogs. It's just dueling Herzogs. I love it. Absolutely. Juan, good times. Thank you for watching some programs and talking about them with me. Please yeah. let us know. Where we can find you? Find me on Twitter at L-O-N-S. That's where um, I'm posting all the stuff I'm working on. That's what I do, you know, every day. But also, if you want to follow my newsletter that is just about streaming TV, it is five days a week. It is free to sign up. And that's at inside.com slash streaming. Good stuff. Good stuff. Get a lot of good info from that. And hey, you can find me at Hal Rudnick, H-A-L-R-U-D-N-I-C-K, on Twitter and Instagram. Also, subscribe to my Twitch channel at Chuckleface, or sorry, uh, twitch.tv slash Chuckleface. I don't know how to say things. Twitch.tv slash Chuckleface, where we're doing comedy shows every month, Tournament of Nerds, which is our pop culture debate show, and other good times. I want to thank hashtag owl nation i want to thank starburns industries for having us and i want to thank our producer adam macias lon i'll talk to you next time hoot hoot yep. bye bye uh, later everybody bitch boys 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 bitch boys